Good morning. Please follow along. Our scripture is Titus 3, 8 through 15. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Thank you, Luke. And good morning again to everybody. Uh, if you weren't here earlier when I uh, greeted everybody, I want to greet you now. I'm so glad that you're uh, here worshiping with us at Greater Hope. Um, today, I'm going to warn you before I start, I may have to take a drink or two of my, my water during the sermon. Hopefully that will not uh, distract you too much. Uh, I battled hard against the cold this week. And you know those summer colds, they hang around. And so if I start coughing or sneezing or have to get a, uh, get a drink, please, please excuse me. Uh, we are today wrapping up our series in Titus, which is really exciting. I don't know, you can go back to uh, to work and tell everybody you spent the first six, week of, six weeks of summer in Crete, and everybody will be very, very impressed that you had such a sophisticated vacation. Uh, we've been at Crete, of course, because that's where Titus was uh, 2,000 years ago, around about. Uh, he was given the assignment of helping these new churches, these little church plants, a lot like our own, to grow and to flourish on an island that it didn't seem like the gospel was going to get a whole lot of traction. Remember, uh, they actually used the word for Cretan as the word for liar in Greek. Like they would say, hey, you're, you're Cretaning when you're lying to me. You're, you're Cretaning at me. <laughs> That's how bad the reputation was of this little island. And yet, I mean, God's grace just comes through so clearly in the fact that Jesus Christ was, was proclaimed there by Paul and Titus and others, and a community did in fact rise up. A community of believers who are being transformed. And, and, and Paul's overall you know, message to Titus we've been seeing throughout these weeks in the summer is fruitfulness. Uh, what God wants more than anything when it comes to a church like ours or these churches in Crete is that we would be individually and together as a community very fruitful right in the midst of the place where God has placed us. That we would bear good fruit. And so we've looked at that from a variety of different angles. That deals with us as a church. It deals with us personally in our own relationships. And then here in chapter 3, it deals with how we relate publicly out in the community. Uh, it, it is no secret in the Bible that uh, God has a plan for his people publicly. Uh, God wants us to be an influence uh, wherever we are. I mean, Jesus uses that terminology of salt and light. He wants us to be salt in the earth and light in the world. And we've talked about this before, but, but think about salt and light. Those two things, when they get into something, don't leave it the same, do they? Those, those two things always have a, a, a kind of transformative effect on the environment that they're placed in. And that's the way Jesus thinks about you and me. When he comes into our lives by his spirit, he wants us to make a difference around us. And yet, when we hear that, I don't know if you're like me, I hear that and I get kind of overwhelmed at times. 
So what exactly is it that God is expecting of me? Salt and light? I mean, that sounds beautiful, but what does that practically mean Monday through Sunday every single week? Well, what does it mean I'm actually supposed to think like and do? Uh, it, it's, a, it's a question that can actually knot us up. Uh, I, I was talking in the past couple of weeks to a really dear friend of mine who used to live here and he's, he's since moved away, but I got a chance to sit down with him and catch up and uh, he was really discouraged and disturbed about one story of Jesus in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament. He didn't know what to make of it. It was the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler. Do you remember that story? Uh, where this young man, he's, he's, he's both young, rich, and powerful. I mean, he's got everything, right? He's got everything that people were chasing back then and everything that people are chasing now. And yet he comes to Jesus and he has this great question, Lord, what does God expect of me? Lord, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus, you know, starts out by kind of comforting the man. He says, hey, well, what are the Ten Commandments? And the man lists them. And Jesus says, well, go and do all those commandments and you will live. And the man says, well, that's easy. I've done them since I was a kid. I don't think he had a lot of self-awareness, by the way, <laughs> in saying that, if he's anything like me. But nevertheless, he was comforted by that. And so Jesus came with something very disconcerting. It, it disturbed that man. It disturbs me when I read it. And it disturbed my friend that I was talking to. He said to the rich young man, I want you to take everything you have and I want you to sell it all. And I want you to give the proceeds to the poor and then I want you to come and follow me. And so my friend was sitting across from me this the past couple of weeks and you could tell on his face, man, he was really knotted up. He says that this can mean one of two things. Either A, Jesus is saying everyone who follows them has to give up every single thing they have in order to be a disciple. Or B, it at the very least means that every disciple has to give up something. And how do I know I've given up the right thing? How do I know I've given up enough? How do I know I've done what God expects of me was his question. Well, it's a good thing uh, we were looking at Titus because my mind directly went to these verses that we read this morning. Paul tells Titus in very clear language there in verse 8, if you'll look at it, the very first verse this morning, exactly what it is God, big picture, expects of his people in the world. And it is at once a kind of like Jesus' answer to the rich young ruler. It's, it's a little disturbing on one hand, but on the other hand, it's full of so much life and hope and comfort. Look at what it says there in verse 8. Paul says, this saying is trustworthy. What saying is he talking about? The, the one that Matt talked to us about last week there in verses 4 to 7. If you have your Bible, you'll see it, that Paul was summarizing the good news of Jesus. He was summarizing the gospel. He said it involved three things. It involved being justified by God's grace. We'll talk about that a little bit later. It, it says it, it involves uh, being heirs of God, members of God's own family. And finally, it, it involves the hope of eternal life. Paul says that saying of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is very trustworthy. And so I want you, uh, Titus, to insist on these things to those who are in Crete. Keep on talking about the gospel and don't stop talking about it. Why should I keep on talking about the gospel? Paul, they're going to get tired of it. Paul tells them, because those who have believed in God, it says, when they hear the gospel, when they learn it, when they embrace it in their heart, those who believe in God become careful to devote themselves to good works. And I want to tell you this morning, just that one sentence right there is where I really want to focus. We're going to look at different parts of the, of the passage, but that one sentence is going to guide us. He says we got to be careful we got to be devoted, and we got to be devoted to good works. That's what God expects. The gospel, 
to do in our lives when we really hear it and embrace it and believe it. And so if you look at your uh, worship bulletin, I've laid out three things for you based on those three phrases. Uh, first of all, we got to be careful. We got to be aware of the needs around us. Second, we got to be devoted. We got to have compassion for those needs and for those people who are in need in our community around us. And then finally, we got to be devoted to good works. We got to be active in it. We can't just think about it and talk about it. We got to actually do something about it. So we got to be compassionate. We got to be, uh, we got to be aware. We got to be compassionate. And we got to be active. So first of all, to be aware. Uh, Paul tell, told uh, Titus there, as we saw, you got to be careful. Uh, those who really believe and understand the, the massive good news and the hope of the gospel are people who learn how to be careful to devote themselves to doing good works for other people. Now, we're going to see here that we have a, a really big problem with that, and it's not because, actually, that it's not because naturally we're not careful about anything, and Paul is now saying the gospel makes us careful about something. Actually, I want to say to everybody in the room, everybody is careful, like this word means, about something in their life. It might just not mean you're careful about doing good for others and serving other people. Everybody's careful, though. That word careful really just means to, to study something, to have the kind of mindset that wants to figure something out, like all the way down to the details, so that in knowing the details, you might actually act on those details. And so when Paul says be careful, he's, he's describing actually what you and I do every single day of our lives. Isn't that right? There's something that we're steadily studying in our life, wanting to make it the aim of our life, whether we are conscious of it or not. It's just usually what ends up happening is all of our focus ends up sucking into ourselves. It ends up focusing in on my own needs and my own desires and my own agenda, rather than being really aware of the people around me. That's why, actually, if you're not a believer here today, you're not sure what you believe, I want you to consider Maybe one of the reasons why we're so bad as a culture at just even knowing the names of our neighbors, for example. I mean, you might, we don't even know our names of our neighbors, let alone their stories. One of the reasons we're, we're so bad at community, not just in the church, but, but out in the world at large, is because we're eaten up with this self-focus, this self-obsession. We're careful, but not careful about others. We're careful only about ourselves. And the Bible actually gives a really good reason for that. It's because you and I were made to hear God say, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We were made to hear God's voice of acceptance to be brought into his family, to be accepted by him forever, to know him in an intimate relationship. The Bible says, and one early church father said, that means there's a, there's a deep God-sized hole in the heart. And if that hole inside my heart and yours is God-sized, then it doesn't matter how many little variations of created things I try to put in there to fill that hole, it's never going to fill it up. Finite things, limited things, can't fill an infinite space. Isn't that right? And so what happens is I'm walking around life. You've probably heard me say this before, but I'm walking around life like I walk in the grocery store when I'm hungry. Have you ever gone grocery shopping when you're hungry? It's, it's both good and bad at the same time. Because everything looks so good, right? Everything looks like a good purchase because you're, you just got a ravenous hunger. So three types of ice cream sandwiches, yes, please. I'll take them, right? Five kinds of, of chips and three kinds of dip, sign me up, right? When I'm hungry, that's the way I shop. I don't make good choices, neither for health nor for my pocketbook. I don't make any kind of good choices. That's why it's better to go into the grocery store already full. Well, guess what? The reason why we're careful about ourselves, but not really that concerned or careful about others, 
is because we're walking around with a ravenous hunger deep in our gut. And we can't find anything worth filling it in this life. We try all kinds of junk food. You know, we run up the bills, both figuratively and literally, in order to try to get that hole filled, and we just can't, can't do it. And so, and so Paul says to Titus, hey, that's what's going on in Crete. This was happening 2,000 years ago, y'all. The reason why they were lazy gluttons and evil beasts and, and liars, as it said in chapter 1, is because they were trying to fill the hole that only God could fill. So Titus, here's what you need to do. You need to preach a big gospel of big grace. And so last week we saw in, in chapter uh, 3, verse 7, that Paul said, here's what one of the aspects of the gospel. We are justified by his grace. And I want to tell you this morning, if you're not sure what you're hungry for in life, that's what you're hungry for in life, according to the Bible. If you're not sure what you're shopping for this morning, let me just humbly submit to you, what you're shopping for is justification by grace. You say, what in the world does that mean? It means this, God's 100% forgiveness of your sins because of Jesus Christ. And God's 100% acceptance of you now and forever also because of Jesus Christ. That's what justification by grace means. It means when someone believes in Jesus, no matter how dark the, the stain of the sin, no matter how long they've been in the sin, like locked into it as a slave, all of their sins, past, present, and future, are laid upon the body of Jesus and nailed to the cross. Can y'all believe that? Every sin paid for forever, and yet... All of Jesus' righteous obedience, all that he did for the glory of the Father, all his careful love for his neighbors, which, man, his life was full of that, all of that gets put onto us. Our sin onto him, his righteousness onto us. So that when God looks at us, he says about you and me in Christ the same thing he said about his son. This is my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. And that pleasure of God in you can't go up and down based on your performance. Why? Because it's based 100% on Jesus Christ. Now imagine what it would be like for a Cretan in the first century to learn that for the first time. And imagine what it would be like for you this morning, if you don't really believe that, to begin to believe that. And if you do believe that, what would it be like for you to actually take that seriously in your day-to-day -day life? I think this is what it would mean. It would mean that finally the hunger, the thing that I've, I've really always been chasing without knowing it, has finally been given to me. I am satisfied deep inside, so for the first time in my life, I can think about someone else besides myself. I'm no longer walking through the grocery store hungry. That's what it means in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. Right before it says, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation, it said this, from now on in Christ, we don't regard anyone the way we used to regard them. In other words, when Jesus comes in your life, he makes you think about your neighbor. He makes you think about your neighbor in a completely different way than you ever thought about your neighbor. Just as Jesus, one author says, Jesus in his life was a man whose mind was always full of somebody else. A man whose mind was always full of somebody else. That same character begins to take root and to bear fruit in your own life. You begin to look around and not see less of people, but to see more of them. I mean, you might say, wait a minute, I think about people all the time. In fact, I never stop worrying about what people think about me and whether they're happy or sad around me. And I live my life like basically controlled by people. That's not what I'm talking about. Actually, Jesus sets you free from that kind of thing because 
If you think about it, that kind of thinking about people is actually just thinking about myself. It's just how can you help me feel affirmed because you like me or because I've made you happy or something like that. Jesus sets me free from that to finally open my eyes and learn the names and the stories and the needs and the burdens of other people and to see them as if they were my own. Just the way Jesus looked out and saw the needs that we had and saw them as his own. And so this morning, I encourage you, how much of your community do you see? How much of your neighbors and coworkers and friends do you see? Don't you know they've got needs? And some of those needs God has actually equipped you and our church to meet. Do you see them? Their physical needs, their emotional needs, their social needs. Maybe there's all kinds of needs, spiritual needs. Do you see those? Do you see the value and potential of your neighbors? They were made in the image of God. They, they, get to, they get to hear the gospel. And if they believe in Jesus, they become sons and daughters of the Most High God, just like you are if you're a believer. Do you see that value? Are you careful? Are you aware? Studying other people around you. That's the first thing this morning. But secondly, Paul says it cannot stop there. It's got to go on to compassion. Uh, so look again there at verse 8. It says, I want you to insist on the gospel, Titus, so that those who believe may be careful to devote themselves to good works. That's where compassion comes in, is that we're not just to think about our neighbors and to like have a passing thought. We're to, to devote ourselves to the activity of serving them. That word devotion actually means to have a job, to have an employment. In other words, if you're a Christian this morning, I don't know what your job is, and, and there's many wonderful jobs for Christians to have, but I want you to know you also have this job, serve your neighbors. You also have the job of loving your neighbors and serving those around you who are in need. That's what this is talking about. To devote ourselves means that we give ourselves entirely. The picture of the word is that someone who owns a store, if, if nobody is coming in to buy anything, they may go out onto the sidewalk and start like calling people in and bringing them in. That's what devotion means, working the streets trying to get someone to come in that we can serve. That's exactly the way the church should be, not waiting for people to just come to us, but getting outside of the storefront, out into the streets, finding the needs that are around us and really filling our hearts with that sense of God's compassion for those needs, filling our hearts with his love. Even as he has loved us, we want to extend that love to others. And yet, once again, we run into it. we got a big problem here. The problem we have is sometimes our compassion is broken, is busted. Isn't that right? Well, why, why, why does compassion get busted? I think there's one main reason why it does. At least I know in my own life. Compassion gets busted for me when I think my good things are a result of my good actions. When I think my blessings are things I've earned or deserved. I know it's July, but I, I can't help but think about my favorite Christmas movie. When I think about this, the Christmas Carol, Scrooge, of course, is the infamous example of what this looks like. Compassion busted. Do you remember that early scene in the story or in the movie where they're going around collecting money for those in need at Christmas and they're asking Scrooge and he, he literally kicks them out of his store? This is the reason why he gives. This is at least in the book. It's not in the, I don't think, the duck version that Disney put out, but it's in the book. He says, I don't make merry myself at Christmas. And I certainly can't afford, catch this, I certainly can't afford to make idle people marry. 
I can't afford to make lazy people marry if I'm not even married. Do you see the heart behind Scrooge's refusal to show compassion? His heart is this. I've got a lot of gold and I love my gold. And why do I have my gold? Because I've worked really hard. And all those other people out there, they haven't worked hard enough. They're not like me. They're not as organized as me. They're not as with it as me. That They don't care as much about a good day's work as me. And so I'm not going to spend my well-earned time to help someone who's in need. Y'all, not only is that a complete lie straight through, but that will every single time kill the heart. It'll kill the organ of compassion. We'll look at people and we'll see needs that they deserved. And then we'll look at ourselves in the mirror and we'll see blessings that uh, somehow, according to our own thinking, we've earned. And yet, here's what Paul says to Titus. Titus, I want you to insist on the gospel. Because what does the gospel say? Verse 7. Not only have you been justified by grace, but you are heirs of God. God has given you an inheritance in his family. Now, this, this answer me this. You can answer out loud. How do you get an inheritance? Do you earn it? Nope. Or do you receive it as a gift? Yes. No one has ever earned an inheritance, right? Inheritance are given by, like, decree. I am your dad. I will pass on to you my stuff, oh, my son, or oh, my daughter. According to Scripture, that's what the gospel's saying. The good things we have in life, not least of which is forgiveness of sins and acceptance with God, is not something that we've ever earned or deserved. That's true also of the material blessings we have, the fact that you woke up this morning, the fact that you eat, that you have clothes, that you have more than some of your neighbors, is not a result of you having earned it and God gave you your paycheck. All of it is a result of the kindness of our Father in heaven who loves to give a good inheritance to his children. And so when the gospel comes like racing into our lives saying, look, you have not ever been good enough for me, and yet I loved you even still. I came all the way down and had compassion on you through Jesus. I drew you into the family, and everything that belongs to Jesus, my son, now belongs to you. Free gift, free donation. You don't even have to pay taxes on it. What does that begin to do to the way you see, the way I see my neighbors? No longer do I see their needs just as evidence of their laziness or their needs of their evidence of, well, they just need to be more like me or that group of people needs to be more like us. No, instead, what do I see? An opportunity to pay forward what God has already given to me. Unmerited, undeserved, and unearned compassion. That's the way Jesus was when he was on this earth. He looked out over the crowds and he didn't grumble under his breath. What a bunch of lazy, no good people. Instead, he wept when he looked at the crowds. It says he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And so his heart was moved. Jesus became devoted to them, as Paul is using the word in Titus. In 2 Corinthians, another letter in the New Testament, it says, Y'all know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, how though he was rich, though he was very rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we believers might become rich. That's the love of God. You've got to be able to understand that. It's not something you earn or deserve. Um, this, this story I've heard a couple times over the past uh, two months uh, one time was with, from our own Christina Schrader, who's, who's a, a young lady in our church, and you heard her give her testimony way back at the beginning of the Titus series. 
Well, she came to our community group and, and told this story recently about Bible translation, because that's what she's planning to go do in Africa, in the country of Togo. And she said, in another African country, in Cameroon, there was this group of translators who were trying to translate the Bible for the first time for the Hebe people, this, this, uh, people called the Hebe people. And as they were translating John 3.16, for God so loved the world, they were trying to figure out what word would express the Bible's meaning of God's love. And they knew that in this language, there were three different forms of every verb, one ending in an I, one ending in an A, one ending in a U. And so there, was a, there were three different words for love. There was devi, there was deva, and there was devu. But they noticed that they only ever heard people use the first two. They never, ever heard devu. They never heard the third one. And so they sat down with these, these men and women who were helping them translate, and they said, okay, let me ask you some questions. Could a husband divide his wife? And they nodded their head, of course, yeah, that, but that would mean that the husband used to love the wife but doesn't anymore. He's moved on. And so they thought, okay, well, that's not, what, that's not the word that we ought to put in John 3.16. Then they go to devah. Could a, could a husband devah the wife? And they said, oh, absolutely, all the time. Devah means that the husband loves the wife because the wife's a really good wife. You know, she, she cooks really well. She cleans really well. She doesn't, you know, commit adultery. She, she, she's a very great wife. And so, therefore, the love goes out. They thought, okay, well, that, that might maybe be it. I'm not sure. And then they asked, could a wife or could a husband devu his wife? And immediately they looked really shocked and confused. They began to kind of scratch their head and they said, well, I guess... I guess he could, but it would mean that she was a bad wife. She hadn't done all the things that a wife was supposed to do. She had committed adultery. She had done all these bad things, and, and yet the husband still loved the wife. Well, the translator's eyes, you know, lit up. That's it. That, that's the word for love in John three sixteen. God so loved the world that way. He devoted the world. And, and, and they're just like still confused. And all of a sudden, the, the missionaries recount, their eyes begin to well up with tears. And they said, could God really devue human beings? Could it really be true? I mean, the, the implications of that, the, the consequences of that are, are amazing. That, that would mean that God, for thousands upon thousands of years, has stayed faithfully in love with human beings, even though they spit on him, they rejected him, they turned away and, and started a rebellion against him, and that included all the people of the world, and yet God still loved them. The missionary says precisely. This morning, I want to tell you, you got to get that kind of devu love in your mind and heart when it comes to God for you if you're going to understand anything about how to have compassion on other people. The wave of God's love against my persistent unfaithfulness and, and sin in my life is like a tsunami against my stinginess against other people. When I look at people, for example, as we often do, and we say, well, I would help them, but they're not really that poor. I mean, after all, they might not have this or that, but they got a TV. I'm not going to help them there. And yet I hear God say, oh, love your neighbor as yourself. And I would never love myself that way. I would never say, well, I have a TV, so I don't need food. I would never say that about myself. Why would I say that to a neighbor? As I often do, I might look at someone and say, well, I've got nothing to spare. I mean, I've got all just what I got to live on. I got nothing more. It would be sacrificial for me to help that person. And yet here comes the love of God. God came in and sacrificed everything for me. He loved me even when it hurt. 
And he calls me also to have a heart of compassion that would love other people, even though it hurts. I might say, wait a minute, they're ungrateful, they're entitled, they just expect a handout. Well, how entitled have I been with God? How ungrateful often have I been? We might say, well, wait a minute, it's their fault that they're poor, that they are lazy, they are idle, as Scrooge says. And yet, of course, there's the verse, the devout of God, God so loved the world, even though the world absolutely is in the misery it's in because of our own fault. And yet God came all the way down. In other words, this morning, here's what we're saying. To have a heart full of compassion for people, you've got to live and think like an heir of the most high king of the universe. Rather than thinking like Scrooge, who thought and acted like he was an orphan that had to earn it all on his own. God has said to us in the gospel, I have not left you orphans. I've adopted you. I've given you an inheritance free. That's compassion. Now, thirdly, this morning, and lastly, this will be briefer. We've got to be active. You see what he says there in verse 8, if you look at it again. Titus, I want you to insist on the gospel so that people will be careful. That's aware. So that they'll be devoted. That's compassionate. But they've got to be devoted to good works. Okay, everybody say works. <laughs> Works doesn't mean just thinking about it. Works doesn't mean just theorizing about it or doing some sermons about it. Uh, You know, works does not mean just reading some books about it. (coughs) This is saying that actually serving our neighbors is something that is best learned by doing. It's something every one of us has to learn. I mean, that's what Paul goes on to say there in verse 14 at the end of the passage He says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. It's something that we have to, like, exercise our muscles and get better and better at. But the only way we can do it is actually by getting into the game and doing something about it. It's not something that can be just done theoretically. Uh, When I was a a teacher here at Mulberry High School for a few years right after college, they they came to me not long into my my stint here, and they asked me to be the, the chess club coach. And my response was, well, I'm embarrassed to say, but I'm 22 years old and I've never played chess in my life, ever. I, don't even, I couldn't even name the, the names of the pieces. That was embarrassing, but I had never played chess. And they said, okay, you'll do fine. You're the coach. <laughs> uh, they didn't give me an opportunity to argue my way out of it. So the first thing I did is I went up to Books a Million and I got a book, you know, How to Play Chess for Dummies or something like that. And took it home and started reading it over and over. I, mean, I read a lot. Of, I'm, I'm a big fan of reading, so I read that thing. I studied it. I thought I knew. And then I got to our first ch- chess club uh, meeting. I think it was right over here in one of these portables. And I just got dominated by every single player uh, over and over again. And I realized at that moment, okay, chess is something you can't just learn from a book. <laughs> you got you to actually do it to figure it out. And, and, and lo and behold, I did. I started to beat a few of the, the weaker players on the team. <laughs> by the end of the season and and started playing you know kind of against the computer and learning how to do it you learn by doing that's true of so many different things in life y'all you know what loving your neighbor is like that you might say well i don't love my neighbor so i'm not going to listen to what you have to say about it you know why you don't love your neighbor you haven't tried it's as simple as that simply walking across the street knocking on the door and asking them for their name Getting to know them, learning their story, offering to help a case that you see right in front of your face is clearly an urgent need. I guarantee you, if you'll make a step and do that, compassion and activity and all those things will start to come alive in your heart. 
Because you learn compassion by actually putting your hands to the plow and getting something done. And so Paul tells <coughs> Titus, excuse me, there in uh, verse 12 and, and 13, I want you to send Artemis or Tychicus to you. Or when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come, me, to, come to me at Nico Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. Catch this. See that they lack nothing. In other words, if you want to put the teaching of this letter into practice, don't just go have a sermon series on it. Also do that, but then also go out and just start doing something. See that people don't lack anything. Go and try to help, he says in verse 14. Cases of urgent need. Do not be unfruitful. Which that's the whole point of this whole series. Don't be unfruitful. How do we not do that? By taking action on urgent needs that are right in front of our faces. Now, the problem that we have is this. We often think, okay, I'm going to take action. But then I'm going to get out there and I'm going to be disappointed because they're going to be ungrateful again. They're going to be entitled again. I'm going to get mad because they're going to waste the help that I give them. What in the world are, are the resources to help me through that? Well, again, go back to the gospel. In verse 7 it says, not only are we justified by grace, not only are we heirs of God, but we have the hope of eternal life. The hope of eternal life. If I could say so myself, we have a greater hope. <laughs> that hope comes from God, who not only sent his son into the world the first time to die on a cross and rise from the dead, but guarantees that his son will come back again to make sure everything he worked for will be realized. I was reading in my personal devotions this week, Isaiah 60, and I, I encourage you to go read Isaiah 60. You might not understand it. I didn't fully understand it. It's kind of, it's one of those prophet uh, chapters that's got some weird things in it, but it's beautiful at the same time because it describes the world as it will one day be when God remakes it. And then this last verse, verse 22 of Isaiah 60, just hit me like a, like a knife this week as I read it. It says this, I am the Lord. When it is the right time, I will act quickly. I am the Lord. When it's the right time, I will act quickly. Have you ever heard anything better than that? I don't know that I had. Because as I read Isaiah 60 and thought, okay, the you know, all, all the riches of the world are going to come into God's kingdom and the lion's going to lay down with the lamb and the snake's not going to bite the kid. And I'm thinking all this, that's kind of weird, but also I like that vision of a world full of peace and joy and union with God. But yet I look at my own life and it's so far away from that. God, why is it taking so long? Are you even real? Are you even at work? And here's the voice of God at the very end. I'm the Lord. When it's the right time, I will act quickly. What does this mean? This means in Christ we have this hope. One day God is going to finish everything he started. We can know not exactly what's going to happen in our lives day to day, whether people are going to snub us or, or, or waste the, the, the work that we do for them. We, we don't know that for sure, but we know this. Nothing done for the glory of God and nothing done for the good of my neighbor is going to ever be wasted. Not one drop of that effort will be wasted. God is going to make sure every investment gets a return in the kingdom of heaven. And so because of that greater hope, we can look out at our city with different eyes, can't we? I don't know if you know it, but Polk County is right now ranked the fifth in the nation for poverty. Fifth in the whole nation among counties for poverty 
among suburban areas. That's amazing. There's poverty of, of material things and spiritual things and, of course, emotional pain and brokenness. There's social dysfunction. People don't get together. People don't get along. And we as the church have an opportunity, not just our church, but all the churches in Mulberry have the opportunity to be like a fruitful garden in the middle of Polk County, in the middle of our city, bearing fruit for the good of other people. We have that opportunity. I mean, just as a side note, for those of y'all who came last Sunday night to the unity service, thank you so much for coming. I appreciated the, the turnout of, of our church at the unity service. I was, like I've, I've talked to many of you, I was a little disappointed at the overall turnout. But I just want to say this to us. Let's not give up. Let's keep trying, okay? Let's keep trying because our, our, our trying and our attempts are not based just on human calculations of what's going to work and what's not going to work. Our trying is based on the fact that God, when the time is right, is going to act quickly. When the time is right, he's going to finish his work. No effort that we give, no matter how wasteful it seems, is going to fall to the earth without bringing forth some kind of fruit. Isn't that right? And so, y'all, let's, let's look at Mulberry. Let's think about our neighbors. Let's think about our coworkers. How can we, first of all, get to know their names, understand their stories, invite them over to our tables, invite them into church? How can we get out to city events? Like Lewis last week in the testimony encouraged us to do their there are so many events in our city that are, that are made specifically to bring people together in Mulberry. Let's get out there more and more to connect, to meet with people, to, to get our eyes open so we can become aware of the needs. We want to be a serving church. Isn't that right? That's what God expects of us. That's what he wants us to dream about when we lay our head on our pillows and think about what, what he's calling us to do in our lives and in our church. I want to be a servant in my community seeing needs, being aware, full of Jesus' compassion, and then going out and acting. You know my friend who was really knotted up about the rich young ruler? And maybe that describes you this morning. I think there was one thing he was missing. The reason that story knotted him up. It was that when that rich young ruler approached Jesus, he was approaching a richer ruler. Richer? He owned a cattle on a thousand hills. Everything is his. Younger, because he's eternal. The same yesterday, today, and forever. And you want to talk about a ruler. The ruler of all things in heaven and on earth. He was looking right into his eyes. And so when that richer, younger, more powerful ruler looked at the rich young ruler and said, I want you to give it all up and follow me. He was only asking him to do what he himself was about to do for him. What he himself was about to do for the world. The gospel says Jesus gave it all up to redeem us. And what that means is not only that we would have a personal relationship with Jesus, which is true, but that we would also together become fruitful for Jesus. Serving our neighbors, careful to devote ourselves to good works. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, I thank you for your grace today and mercy <coughs> for <clears throat> the way that you have given so much wealth away for us. And, and, and Lord, I, I know for me, I've been so undeserving of it. How much of your breath and how much of your food and how much of your spiritual blessings and, and friendships and relationships, how much have I wasted in my life? How much have I been ungrateful for? And yet, God, how you've loved me wave upon wave of love. 
And so, God, I pray that today you would fill my heart, fill our hearts with the kind of compassion that Jesus had. Help us to see Mulberry like Jesus sees Mulberry. Help us to see Polk County like Jesus sees it. To see our nation the way Jesus does. To see our world the way Jesus does. God, fill us. Keep us up at night thinking about our neighbors and what they need from you. We pray this, God, so that your name would be glorified. We know, Lord, you are the Lord. And when the time is right, you will act quickly. We pray it in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.